0: Hey, what's up you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. All right. So we're diving back into the Gospel of John. If you are joining us midstream or recently, uh, here's where we are in the narrative. Jesus is in uh, what they call the upper room. It's the night before his death. So Jesus is on death row. You could let that land on you for a moment. You can start to understand the emotional weight of what's happening. Jesus is going to die the very next day, and he knows it. He knows not only that he's going to die, but that he is going to die horribly. And so he's with the remaining 11. Judas has already done his thing and left the room. And now Jesus is uh, embedded in a series of Texts that theologians refer to as the upper room discourse. For you and me, it's the stuff he said to his followers the night before he died. So he's trying to prepare them for his departure. He's trying to get them ready to understand hey guys, I'm leaving. I'm going to leave you. And they are freaked. They're just worried and they're nervous about what's going to happen. They're not overly concerned about what's going to happen to Jesus. They're just concerned about what's going to happen to them. So they're just, you can't leave, you can't go, you have so much more to do. They've just started to come around to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. They've just started to come around to the idea that that he is going to right the wrongs of the world. For a first century Jewish believer, Messiah is, is the one who's going to set right all the years of oppression and persecution that the children of Israel have faced. The Messiah is the one who's going to make sure everybody in the world knows these are God's chosen people. The the Messiah is going to break the yoke of Roman oppression, and they've just started to understand that he's the Messiah, and now he's talking about leaving. So they're freaked, and they, they keep pushing back, and they don't They don't understand what's happening. And Jesus is trying, trying in vain as it turns out, to to help them understand the dynamics of the Trinity. He's saying, look, guys, like I can't, Be with more than 11 of you at a time in a room. The the laws of physics and interpersonal dynamics dictate I can only connect with a few of you. But if I go, the Holy Spirit will come, the advocate will come, the counselor will come and take up residence in all of you, in everyone's heart. And that was new information. That was a new concept. The Spirit of God was something that dwelled without, not within So he's trying to get them ready, and he's trying to prepare them for what's to come, and he's telling them point blank, this is going to hurt. What comes next is going to be really difficult. You are going to have trials. You're going to have sorrow. Life is going to be hard. But if you remain in me and I remain in you, you're going to have joy Joy that transcends the circumstances because I have overcome the world. You stay in me. Stay in your lane. Plug into me. Remain. Live. Make your living. Abide in me. Stay connected to me. And your life will produce something. You will literally be productive. You will produce joy, and it'll emanate out from you like a blast radius into the world around you. Other people will come into your presence and go, that person is giving off energy. That person is doing something good in the world. That's your purpose, to glorify God. He's trying to prepare them for all this, and just, oh, they just don't quite get it. And and then he speaks of this joy. If you you remain in me and, and, and I remain in you, there will be a resultant thing. Joy will come up out of you. This is what will happen, and your life will begin to flow outward. So he's trying to spit all this stuff out to them, and then finally he comes to the end of what he says to them. And then he turns his eyes to heaven to pray. And that's where we left it off last week. Jesus has his eyes upward now. He's praying to the Father and, and, the, and his, his, his disciples and we get to listen in. So this is gospel of John chapter 17. Right where we picked it up, uh, where we left it off last week, this is John chapter 17, verse 13. Now I'm coming to you. Remember, Jesus is talking to God here, not to his disciples. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. There's that word again. They'd be filled with my joy. I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth teach them your word which is truth just as you sent me into the world I am sending them into the world and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth okay make them holy by your truth did you catch that don't sleep on that, that's big. That is a tie, that's a throwback. He is hearkening back to what he said two or three weeks ago for us, five or ten minutes ago for them. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we, we, we landed on this verse that says righteousness is available because I go to the Father, do you guys remember that? Yeah, some of you are remembering more things. Rock on, I like that, makes me happy. okay, if you're new to church or weren't here a couple of a couple of weeks ago for us, a couple of verses ago for them, he says, Righteousness is available because I go to the Father. And that landed funny, that was weird. What do you mean righteousness is available? Righteousness is available, righteousness can just be like picked up. Righteousness can be had. I could, I could, I could acquire it. Yeah, righteousness is available because I go to the Father. So wait, whoa, 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 this is a paradigm shift, new worldview uh, coming into focus here. Righteousness is not a matter of the tribe to which I was born or the family to which I was born. Righteousness is not a matter of my heritage. Righteousness is not a matter of my behavior. This doesn't make any sense. Is not righteousness acquired by holy living? Is not righteousness acquired by doing good deeds? Is not righteousness acquired by giving enough money to the church or the temple? Is not righteousness acquired by, I don't know, praying, fasting, helping people, doing good stuff, finding a way so that that imaginary scale in our mind of good deeds and bad deeds somehow tips into our favor and God calls us righteous. Isn't that the way it works? This is Jesus saying, no. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father. And now he's praying. He said it to them. Now he's saying it about them. He's talking to God and going, make them holy by your truth. He's not praying, I hope they become holy and do enough good deeds to be thought of as holy. I hope these guys will finally get their act together and start living a holy, righteous life. No, no. Holiness is not acquired, apparently. Holiness is imparted. Are you catching this, church? Because it's huge. This is a big theological concept. It is in point of fact the entire gospel being encapsulated for us right here in this prayer. Righteous standing with God is not a matter of your behavior. It's a matter of what you believe. Do you believe he was the son of God? Do you believe he died and lived a sinless life? Do you believe he rose from the dead and that his death took place in payment for your sins? This is Jesus saying, I'm going to go pick up the tab. I'm paying for all of your sins so that now, today, on Long Island, this week, when we sin." If we confess that sin to God, he lifts it up off of us and he places it onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ and we go free of it. And God calls us holy because we're forgiven, not because we've earned holiness, earned righteous status with our behavior, because holiness has been imparted to us by God. He's telling them. He's, in this, he's embedded in the prayer. Remember, he's praying out loud. He doesn't have to pray out loud. He's praying out loud so they'll hear him. He's saying, you were far too short-sighted. You wanted me to come to break the yoke of Roman oppression. I came to break the yoke of sin. I came for something far greater, and when I do... You no longer have to spend your life striving. You don't have to spend your life trying to be good enough, hoping someday that God will think, you, think of you as good enough, hoping someday to win God's approval and win God's favor and somehow earn your way into good and righteous standing. This is Jesus going. That's simply not how it works anymore. I came to build a bridge. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and now he's praying to the Father, make them holy by your truth. If you and me have any holiness or righteousness about us, it's not because of how good we are. It's because of how good God is. It's been imparted to us. It doesn't come because we're awesome. It comes because he's awesome. And we live our lives in response to that amazing gift. Everybody with me? Big, big theological concepts. He's not quite done. Verse 20. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you and I for everyone who will ever believe in me through their message, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began oh righteous father the world doesn't know you but I do and these disciples know you sent me I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. So Jesus is praying for us. He's talking to God, and he's saying, God, I'm praying for these guys and everyone who will ever believe in me because of them. And that's all of us. That's every believer throughout history. That's, that's Jesus praying for us. And what does he pray for us? Unity. Unity. I pray that they will experience unity among them. In fact, such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me. Our example to the world is to be such perfect unity that everyone knows that God sent Jesus Christ to earth. Like, that's the goal. That's what we're after. Now, how can we pull that off? in a church like this where there's so many different backgrounds we've got different schools of thought different different political ideologies different philosophies different ways of looking at scripture there's so much there's so much that we, we, we don't share in terms of belief. In fact, nobody no, no two people in this room probably see things exactly the same way. So how can we be perfectly unified? How do we achieve unity? By properly dividing the line between right and righteous. Believers get this confused all the time. To be right, for many people within church world, being right makes them righteous, and this is not so. In point of fact, I actually think our church does a great job with this. I think for most people, most people's experience from what I've seen as I talk to people, as I talk to our staff, our team, our volunteers, and and, and many of you, people come in here from many different walks of life. We focus on them. We keep the main things the main things. We major in the majors, and we minor in the minors. You follow me, team? We keep, you follow me? Everybody with me? I'm just checking. Got to check in once in a while. Make sure you're still there. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And from time to time, we're going to disagree on things. Yes? Come on. There's going to be disagreement. Some of you vote one way. Some of you vote another way. Some of you, and and the way the, 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 party lines work now it's like there are entire worldviews in the offing with that aisle between republican and democrat and and there are there's sections and subsections and sub subsections that we agree on or don't agree on so how can we be unified it's very simple we love each other even if we disagree we love one another deeply and fully and freely even if we disagree we reject roundly this idea that i'm right and i have a bible verse to put a flag in so i'm going to put the flag in the ground and say here i stand on the word of god and if you don't agree with me then you're not right and therefore unrighteous right righteous wrong unrighteous that dichotomy is false that's simply not how it works And when you hear somebody doing that, proof texting and putting a flag in the ground, chances are you're listening to somebody who's about to weaponize the scripture. So my challenge to you is this. Because you have a part to play in this, every one of you. Me too. My challenge to you is this. When you encounter someone you disagree with, when you talk to them, when you connect with them, when you have your disagreement, when you have your moment and you bump into each other and things aren't, maybe things get a little tense, when that person leaves your presence, do they feel loved? Or do they feel judged? That's your homework. Do they feel loved? Are they sticky with the residue of love? When they've come from a meeting with you and from time with you or are they sticky with the residue of judgment and disapproval this is what we're called to nice and quiet in the room right now i like it good landing on you is it this is homework for all of us we're called to practice this, to, to get to a place where we experience such perfect unity. Yeah, hey, this is my friend, and we disagree, and we got a lot of things we don't agree on, but I still love this guy. I still love this person. This is still my brother or sister in Christ, and we may not agree on things now. We'll figure it out in heaven. We have enough work to do without sniping at each other. We are to be unified in our love for one another and in our love for the Lord so that the watching world sees unity, not judgment and if we can pull that off it would be spectacular and it's my hope that each of us is striving for that because that's what Jesus prays for for you on his last night and that was the end of his prayer we've now come to the end of our time in the upper room this is the top of of John chapter 18 as Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley with his followers John chapter 18, verse 1. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he. They all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, Who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Okay. So what just happened in this text? They, they go, they, they, Jesus goes to this, this olive grove. And this is, this is where he goes to just find a moment of peace. Yeah? Do you have a place where you go to? Where you just need to clear your head sometimes? Uh, a place by the water? In a park? A parking lot? I don't know. Anybody, anyone know what I'm talking about? just go someplace, sometimes you just need to be quiet for a minute. This particular grove of olives is a place where Jesus would go to clear his head. This is a place he would go to just breathe. And Judas knew it. So Jesus is there trying to collect himself, and this contingent of Praetorian guards shows up. And and Jesus knows what's going to happen, so he steps forward and goes, who are you guys looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he steps forward and says, I am he. And they all fall down like bowling pins. Did you catch that? They just just collapse. What on earth is going on in this text? Like, what just happened? Well, there's a grammatical nuance that might be easy for you to miss if you're not paying attention. When Jesus steps forward and says, I am he, he isn't just coming up and going, oh yeah, guys, that's me, present. What he's saying is, I am. If you look, if you look at the scriptures, I don't think we got it on the slide, but if you, if you read this in the Bible, the words I am are capitalized. They're actually in, in uppercase letters. I am he. He. It's a grammatical nuance you could miss if you're not paying attention. It harkens back to the book of Exodus. Do you guys remember the story of the children of Israel in captivity and and Pharaoh has has the children of Israel enslaved and God says to Moses, you're gonna go talk to Pharaoh, you're gonna introduce yourself to the children of Israel and you're gonna tell Pharaoh to let my people go and Moses basically looks at God and goes, yeah, I I, I don't even know what to call you. I need a name. I need to tell them who sent me. This is that text, way, way back in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. So when God identifies himself to Moses, when Moses says, oh, we've only ever known you as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't have a name for you. This is Moses going, could I just like get a business card here, dude? I don't know what to say to you. Or I don't know what to say about you. And God says, tell them I am has sent you. Right there in the text, right there in the scriptures, capital I, capital A, capital M. capital M, I am, the present tense form of the verb to be. I know it's grammatically like, like weird, but that's what he says. Yahweh, I am, has sent you, tell them. Jesus does this again. Earlier in the book of Romans, Romans chapter eight, he's arguing with the Pharisees. And he says, Your father Abraham saw my coming and rejoiced. And they go, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you know Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was born, I am, capital I, capital A, capital M. I am, the present tense form of the verb to be, the very name of God. So when Jesus steps forward, when they say, uh, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't just come forward and go, yeah, that's me, guys, what's up? He steps forward and says, I am He uses the name of God, and they fall down. So what is happening? Well, I didn't know, so I looked it up. There are commentaries for these sorts of things that pastors can look to. Like, why do all these guys fall down? I I was curious, right? I start reading these commentaries. Biblical scholars over the years have argued about this. I read several. The most common explanation that I found from biblical scholars is they were horrified by his blasphemy. Have you ever ever seen like a Praetorian guard in the movies? I know movies don't always get it right, but in, in the movies, the Praetorians, you know who I'm talking about? They have like body armor and they're all diesel. These guys just fell down because they were horrified by his blasphemy, clutching their pearls. I find this answer intellectually not satisfying. I don't buy that. Which begs the question, then what actually happened? Here's my theory, just a theory. But is it possible in this moment, given the stress, is it possible even this, given this, the, the duress that he was under, the horror that he knew he was about to face, this, his last night on earth, this, his last minute of freedom, these Praetorian guards come and presume to take him into captivity? Is it possible that just for a fraction of a second, he flashed his eyes at them? Is it possible that just for a a nanosecond, like like a micron of his divinity shone forth, and in that moment they knew who they were dealing with and fell down? I find that explanation far more plausible and far more realistic. I think just, I think just for a, for a nanosecond, Jesus lost his cool, just, just for a minute. And they saw who he was and collapsed. They eventually collected themselves, stood back up, and he yielded. He didn't have to. But he did. And he laid down his life as a sacrifice that they might be made holy. That's you and that's me. We're so close now, church. We're so close to the events of Good Friday. We've got one more Sunday and then we're into the Good Friday narrative. We'll pick it up right from here next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we're so grateful for this text. We're so grateful that we can lean in and listen. And we're praying, Father, that you'll create within us unity, that we will rightly divide between right and righteous, and that we'll know which one is more important, that we'll err on the side of love, and that love will be the mark of our lives and of your church. Father, for each of us as we struggle, with our desire to want to earn it. May we remember one day at a time that righteousness is available because of what you did for us and that we are made holy by your sacrifice. May it be true in our lives, may it be true in everyone's life. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give, or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word TRUE NORTH to 77977 on your cell phone, and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.